If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thess, chapter 4. Going to be in the same passage, exact same passage we were in last week when we looked at what it is to be the betrothed of Christ. And uh, we looked at the, the, the marriage that was co- that's coming and, and that we're in the betrothal period now and all. We're again in the same passage, but this week we're going to unpack it a bit and take a look at what it means, what it meant to the Thessalonians and what it means to us. So uh, as I was thinking about this, I was remembering back in my Bible school days, uh, one of the classes I was taking was on the book of Hebrews. Now, the guy who taught this class was, uh, this is back at, at the Calvary Chapel Bible College back in 1984 or five, somewhere in there. Uh, he, he was a guy named T., just the letter T. Now that wasn't his birth name because after he got saved, he changed it and, and he, you know, he had his reasons. He's still called that today. But this guy was an awesome Bible teacher and, and he was this hippie looking guy, long kind of bushy blonde hair and a beard and, and this guy was, he had a command of the scripture. I mean, he was just a phenomenal Bible uh, teacher and, and, and every day I would go to class and, uh, we would be in this big, huge lecture hall. The whole student body of the school would be in there. And we'd go to class, and, and I would just be immersed in, in what he was bringing forth as he unpacked the Word. Uh, he, again, a tremendous command of Scripture. And as we got into the book of Hebrews, he was doing something that I thought was interesting. And he understood that in order to approach that book, that in order to interpret it properly, that you have to approach it with a Jewish or a Hebrew mindset. And so every day before class, right as class was getting started, he'd hold his fingers up next to his head and he'd snap his fingers and say, you're a Jew. And he would, and he did that every single day that we got together and as we're teaching or studying this book together. So one day before T arrived at class, a young woman stood outside the door of this lecture hall and handed out little round coffee filters to every person in the school. And the plan was that when he did the thing where he raised his hand, snapped his fingers, and in this deep, throaty voice that he had, he'd go, you're a Jew, we would all put on these coffee filters and we would all be sporting now little yarmulkes. (laughs) It was very amusing uh, to see, I mean, the entire student body of Calvary Chapel Bible College, class of 85, running around with coffee filters on their heads. But it was effective. I mean, here I am nearly 40 years later, 38, 39 years later, talking about it. Because it was a good, it was an effective teaching tool. It got us in the habit of looking at the culture and what was going on with the people to whom the book, the letter was written. Uh, and so with that, as we get into the text here in First Thessalonians, it's tremendously important that we understand the culture within which the Christians in Thessalonica lived. Uh, so if I were here to stand here or sit here, snap my fingers and, and have that deep throaty voice that T had and say, you're a Thessalonian, what would that mean? What would be, how, what would we want to orient our minds towards as we look at this? And so before we actually get into the text, I want to talk about it because that's the only way that we can really accurately interpret this passage. Uh, when I teach, I teach with four contexts. I teach the historical context, what's happening in history. Right? This is the Roman Empire, for instance. That's, that's a historical point that, that we understand. I teach from the cultural context, what's happening in their culture. We're going to look at that. I look at the textual context. What is the text saying? What does it say in the original language? Are there, is there uh, any richness that can be had by going back and looking? Because English is a sloppy language compared to Koine Greek, the language the New Testament was written in. And so you know, I look at that, and then I look at the contextual context, because <laughs> I love the, 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 the ditty, a text without a context is a con. <laughs> and so you've got to understand what's being said in the greater context of the passage. And so as I study and as I prepare to teach and as I study for myself, those are the things that I look at, and I want to look at those today as we look at what the Thessalonians were going through. 
So uh, I want you to understand, too, the Thessalonians were, it was in Macedonia, it was the capital city of Macedonia, and they were, it was a city, a large city that was there in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and, and, and they were a predominantly Gentile culture. Now, there was a small group of Jews there. They were the ones that hassled Paul and got things stirred up to where he had to leave town. But this is a Gentile church. So while Old Testament concepts and ideas, uh, they're, they're taught, they're, I mean, they're represented here in this book, they're alluded to, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time quoting Old Testament scripture here. Uh, the law of Moses, Jewish traditions, Old Testament scriptures, they meant little to these people uh, as they came to the Lord, as they came to Christ out of this Gentile culture. Remember, their spirituality, they were steeped in pagan, idolatrous spirituality, which was rooted in the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods. Now, this is different than him talking to Jews. This is way different. And he was all things to all men, that by all means he may win some. That's what the Bible tells us, what he said. So with regard to that, with regard to what happened to people when they died, uh, a Greek culture was really dark. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it was relatively hopeless compared to what we see in Christ. So uh, one of the things the Greek philosophers said was that hope is for the living, not for the dead. Uh, they had on tombstones, tombstones, inscriptions that said no hope. And they believed that after death, that you went to the underworld to an un, unseen place of torment. From there, but that wasn't the end of it. You were escorted across the river Styx, uh, and, and what happened next depended on how virtuously you had lived in your life. Uh, so at that point, you either were then ultimately ended up in the Elysium Fields. I don't know if you remember the, the, the film Gladiator. It shows that after he died, he's walking through these real beautiful grainy fields and all that. That's because they were representing that he was in Elysium. Or on the other, and that, that was, Elysium was a place, it was a blessed place after death. It was the final resting place of the souls of the heroic and the pure. Or, and this is all works-based, it's all dependent on how you did in your life, or you ended up in Tartarus, which was a place of torment, a place of darkness. Peter actually uses that word for hell uh, in one of his letters as he's referring to the place where the demonic activity originates. So, bad place. At any rate, remember though that these people, they had no real working knowledge of end times theology. They weren't sitting around debating <laughs> things. All they had was what the Apostle Paul had taught them during his brief time with them. But remember, when persecution arose at Thessalonica after three Sabbaths, he had to leave. So he sends Timothy back to strengthen and to encourage the church to nurture them. But keep in mind that Timothy himself hadn't been on the scene for very long either. They met at Lystra still on Paul's second missionary journey. He goes through Galatia and then he gets into the, the area of Galatia called Lystra. And that's where he picks up Timothy. They travel across uh, Galatia through Asia and then on into Macedonia to Philippi and then Thessalonica. He hadn't been with them very long. And so Timothy doesn't have a, exactly a rich working knowledge of these things either. So the Thessalonians... They, I mean, they weren't arguing about theological stances <laughs> related to pre or post. Are you pre-trip? You post-trip? So, uh, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> they, they, they weren't having discussions about whether they were millennialist, you know, pre, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial positions. They, none of that was taking place. Remember, the New Testament is coming together at this point. I mean, that's part of the benefit we have in studying the Word of God, because it's, it's, it is beginning to congeal. And, and at this point, they really had nothing. And so they were living as though Christ was going to return, but they had real serious concerns. So they weren't up to all of that stuff. But here's what they knew. They knew that Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus died for their sins. 
they knew that he was going to come back for his church. And they believed that was being lived out in their lives. They also knew that there was a cost to this thing called discipleship. Uh, as they turned away from the false deities which they had formerly worshipped, which were rooted in demonic activity, and they embraced Christ, they were coming under heavy persecution. And, and I'll tell you what, folks, when people turn to Christ in, in one sense, in a spiritual sense, you're poking the bear. You're no threat to the powers of darkness as long as you're binging along in the world. But you embrace the Lord, and things start happening in your life. People start coming against you, and things begin to take place. There is a spiritual battle, and it is real. They're experiencing it. That's why they were coming under heavy persecution, very heavy persecution at times, after they became, became established as a church. So at the same time, they're living in a state of continual hope, excuse me, continual hopefulness for Jesus' imminent return. And they believed that his return was imminent. So should we. They believed that it would take place. It wasn't a maybe. It was something that they looked at as a settled fact in their lives. Uh, and, and Jesus made sure that people, that his people would think that way. He made sure that there would be a spirit or a sense of expectancy with his church. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus tells the story of the faithful servant and the evil servant. The faithful servant is waiting eagerly for his master to return. On the other hand, the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. And this is Jesus's words here in Matthew 24. But his point in it, is, is that he knows that if we're not living in an attitude of expectancy of his return, we're going to begin to live carnally. And folks, that principle is as, as sure today as it was then. If you're not living with an eye towards heaven, towards his return, it, you, we begin to live for ourselves. So the Thessalonians, although they're living expectantly, they were worried they had concerns, big concerns, because some of them, some of the among them had died. They had little understanding of what happened to someone after death, somebody that clearly belonged to Christ. And so when Timothy rejoined Paul at Corinth, he related to him the concerns and the questions that this baby church, this infant church, not very old, by the time Timothy rejoined them, probably no more than a year old, he related the concerns that they had back to Paul. And as a result, Paul was then compelled to write back and address these concerns. That's the context of this passage in 1 Thessalonians. So, you're a Thessalonian. <laughs> understand that as we approach this and we work through the passage, it's very important that we understand what's going on in the background here. He says in verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So first of all, there are two types of ignorance. One is stick your fingers in your ears. La, 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 la. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. I don't know if you've ever known anybody like that. Maybe they don't physically do that, but it's like checked out, eyes are glazing over kind of a thing. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. The other is that they really sincerely don't know. And that's the people he's talking to here. This isn't willful ignorance. Paul's saying he doesn't want them to be without knowledge concerning those who have died among them. Uh, he knew, Paul said he knew what was driving this too. And it was a deep concern for their loved ones. And, and they were very likely in pain. I mean, if you've ever experienced the loss of someone significant in your life, it's a painful thing. We'll talk more about grief as we go here, but it, he's, he's reaching, he's not just an evangelist. This is his pastor's heart coming through because he wants to bring great comfort to these people in the midst of the things that are going on. We don't know if they were dying because of the persecution or natural causes. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know that as a result of their dying, they didn't understand what was going to happen next. So they would be thinking, you know, what's going to ha happen to my child who died? Uh, will I see my husband again? Uh, is my father or mother in God's hands? Or, or is something else going on? Some, are they somewhere else? I, we don't know, Paul. 
And so last week, too, I mentioned that sleep here is the New Testament word for physical death. And and that's universally, you see it, physical death in the, in the New Testament is referred to as sleep. Uh, and Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things concerning them who are asleep. So understand, that's a that's not a term for unbelievers. That's a term for the believer because sleep is temporary, <laughs> as is physical death. Sleep by its nature has a waking time. I mean, you don't go to sleep not expecting to wake up. Well, that's part of why this word is used. As a matter of fact, the word cemetery literally means sleeping place. And it was employed by the early church because of this concept, because of this understanding. Uh, they began to use the word cemetery for those who had gone to sleep. Now, he also speaks in verse 13 of a difference between those who sorrow with no hope and those who sorrow with hope. And it's very important that we understand that because he's not saying that it's somehow unspiritual to grieve. Uh, in, in my life in, in the pastorate over the years, I, I've dealt with many people at times who are grieving. And, and one of the things that's sad for me is that is when people say, well, I know I shouldn't be feeling like this because, uh, you know, I know that. You, no, no, you should be. Grief is a valid human emotion. And, and I'll tell you what, it just plain hurts. And, 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 and I, I've learned in my own life, especially like when my daughter went to heaven, grief is not one size fits all. And so we need to be able to give people room to grieve the way that they're grieving. So it's because we're separated from those that we love. And yeah, for those that we love that are Christians, that are believers, we know that they have graduated. We know that they're, they exist, just not in this realm. So what he's saying here is that grief is a very different experience for a believer who has hope. Hope in what? Hope in the resurrection. We're going to talk about that. As it does for the unbeliever who is hopeless. A believer sees this, sees physical death, essentially as intermission. Uh, it, it, it's a whole different understanding that drives us when we're grieving over the loss of someone who has died. So on the other hand, experiencing someone's death in a state of hopelessness generally brings great despair and, 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 and a level of heartache because there's not a knowing there. Uh, Paul's saying to the Thessalonians here, you don't need to sorrow like that. I remember my daughter, years before she went to be with the Lord, she was in ICU and she was in, in the ICU for an extended, she was in there for weeks, uh, often near death and, and the whole thing going on there. And I spent those weeks in the ICU waiting room. And, and it was not very long at all as people came and went. And as people came and went in, in this in this waiting room that I began to realize and I began to discern those who had hope and those who didn't. Uh, it, it, just the conversations that were being had, the way that they were conducting themselves, it was very clear to me, and I had a, a, a number of, of very sweet opportunities to serve the Lord in that place during that time. So in verse 14, Paul tells us what that hope is. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So remember, Paul is writing from Corinth to the Thessalonian church. Now, a couple of years after this, probably two to three years, we don't know exactly, on his third missionary journey, Paul would write back, he would now be in Ephesus, and he would write back to the church at Corinth, where he is now, uh, after he had left and gone back to Antioch and then come back across. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 17 to 19, he writes, um, he's, he's addressing these things because the Corinthian church had the same questions that the Thessalonians had. They were beginning to doubt the resurrection. And he says here, he says, if Christ is not yet risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, there's no hope. You got to understand the resurrection is central. He said, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
We are of all men the most pitiable. Interesting. So in, as we go back to Thessalonians in verses 15 to 17, Paul now gets into the nuts and bolts of the resurrection uh, that he's been assuring the Thessalonians was going to come about. And so again, remember, <laughs> you're a Thessalonian. Understand this from where they were at in their culture and in their life, in, in their relationship with the Lord. Very young, uh, very impressionable, and moving out of this pagan idolatry and into the hope that they had in Christ. He says in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, you can put your hope in this. So the first thing he asserts here is, look, this is not my opinion. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word for you. Now, remember, again, this is a totally new church. It's given, this church had been established no more than probably a year before. He was with them for three Sabbaths, we're told in the book of Acts. And so this is, this is new stuff. This is the first time these things are understood in the Christian church in general. I mean, we get this information right from this letter. The first anointed letter, the first spirit-driven letter that he would write in all of the letters, out of all the letters that he would write in the years to come. So in context, he's saying that they could be hopeful about those who had died because they would actually rise before those of them who were still alive when the Lord comes for his church. So what Paul tells them next is both stunning and beautiful. Uh, it would have brought great relief and hope to the Thessalonian Christians who had been experiencing grief and sorrow over the loss of their loved ones. By extension, this passage should bring great hope to us as well. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, you can snap out of it now. You're no longer a Thessalonian. Let's look at what, it all, what does all of this mean for us? What is, yeah, let's come into the 21st century Christians in the United States. What is this, what is this saying? And I'm going to do my best to apply this. But I want, I want you to understand how we roll here at Calvary. Um, we're going to be teaching this from what's known as a futurist interpretation. Now, what that means is these, they we're talking about things that have not yet taken place. If I wanted, if I told you we're going to teach this from a preterist interpretation, that would mean, well, these things already happened in church history and, you know, this, this is a history lesson. I don't believe that that's the case. I don't believe that God's word bears that out not in this passage and not in a number of other passages that we simply don't have time to cover this morning. The other thing I'm going to talk about is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There are different positions. I believe that the one that holds the most weight in God's word is that the church is taken out of here prior to the the last seven years uh, of, of the world as we know it, before the millennial kingdom, and we get into all that, but I believe that the church will be taken out of here prior to the Great Tribulation, prior to the Tribulation period. So uh, those are the two things that I'm going to put forth here that I believe believers are caught up before this time, this Tribulation period. Now, you might hold a different view, and I'm good with that, straight up. I am just fine with that. It's just dandy with me if you hold a different view. These are not doctrines that are pertinent to salvation, uh, and I don't believe, therefore, it's God's will for us to divide over them. I have seen all too often, especially you look at church history, you look at denominations that have split over these things, and, and, and folks, I don't believe that we honor God in that. <laughs> I was thinking about this. One of my Bible teachers, <laughs> a different one, not T, another guy, um, <laughs> he reminded me of Bob Newhart. This guy, he just got up before the class one day and he said to everybody, he just declared, he said, well, you know, we've talked about all this, but I want you to know I'm a pan-tribulationist. 
And everybody was like, what are you talking about? And we got kind of riled up for a moment. And then he just smiled and said, yeah, well, I just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. And so <laughs> anyway, back to First Thess. In verse 16, we see three sounds that Paul is talking about here. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, there, I want to tell you, there are volumes of books written on these passages. We're covering this in about 45 minutes. So, if I don't hit your pet passage, please forgive me. We don't have time to hit all of it. I am going to try to hit the high points, though. And so, as we look at this, the first thing he says, well, first of all, going in, I want to make it clear that Jesus says he is coming personally for his bride. We looked at that extensively last week. This isn't, he doesn't send someone. He is not, he's not saying go fetch them. He is coming himself to come and to take his church to be with him. So as we look at it, the word shout here is a strong word and it means a shout of command. Your translation might even say that. Some of the translations do. Uh, but it's the same word that a military commander would use when he was going to muster his troops. All right, this is kind of like the cavalry's coming kind of a thing. It's a very strong word. The second sound that we look at here is with the voice of an archangel. Actually, there's a definite article there, and it's the archangel, because there's only one named in Scripture, and his name is Michael. All right, we see now he is the archangel that has commanded the host of heaven for millennia, for thousands of years. He's like the big kahuna of angels. All right. I don't know if you can call that, but he's the head guy. We see him in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, and Revelation chapter 12. And he's contending in each of these in different ways. He's contending for God on behalf of his people. He's the one that told Daniel, man, it took me three weeks to get here. I was doing battle with the prince of Persia, the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing. So we know that he's active and that he is taking charge over God's people on God's behalf. So looking back in Bible history, and I'll connect this together in a minute, but I want to, I want to, when I teach, I, I zoom in and I zoom out. So let's zoom out. Let's look and take a broad view at Bible history. And Israel and the church, if we look at it, they have never shared the spotlight together. <clears throat> All right. Israel had that place from Abraham to the time of Messiah. The spotlight shifted from Israel to the church during what we know as the church age, from Pentecost to the rapture, which is what we're looking at this morning. Now, with the rapture, the church is taken out, and the spotlight will once again fall upon Israel as the Antichrist would, after that will be revealed and the most difficult seven years of Earth's history will begin. All right? So I want you to understand that, that, that these are things that will happen. Uh, they're not things that have yet happened, because again, we're taking a futurist view. These are things that are yet future to take place. Now, it's also the period that the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah chapter 30 is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. And uh, Michael, the archangel, will play a significant role. In, he has played a significant role, and he will play a significant role again in events yet to come. So the third thing we look at is this, the third sound that we see here is the trumpet of God. Now, last week we looked at the groomsmen uh, blowing the shofar, the trumpet, before coming before the groom and announcing his coming. And that's just a, a beautiful picture. The Jewish wedding, the first century Jewish wedding. Um, but I want to take another uh, look at this from a different angle and talk about what the Bible refers to as the last trumpet as it relates directly to the rapture of the church. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, and I encourage you to read that. It's a beautiful, it's the most extensive treatise we have in the New Testament on the resurrection. And, and uh, there's just great information there. But again, breaking into the middle of what Paul is telling the Corinthian church, uh, he speaks of this event. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, when you see mystery like this, 
he does the same thing in Ephesians. We speak, and in, in uh, 1 Corinthians as well, in another place, he says, we speak God's word in a mystery. It's not a mystery that's not knowable. When he uses the word mystery here, he's saying this is, a, this is something that has not been known until now. All right? So when he says, I speak in a mystery, it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to understand. No, you are supposed to understand it because now it's being revealed. To the Thessalonians, now here to the Corinthians, this is new stuff. So it's been a mystery. It has not been known until now. And under the inspiration, guidance of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Now you can know it. And so that's why he begins this section with that statement. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what happens to our bodies when we resurrect? Interpreting this in light of what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that the trumpet of God blows and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, understand that when Jesus comes, evidently the spirits of all who have gone before come with him. And at that moment, when he comes, everybody that's died before comes with him. And as the dead in Christ rise first, and those of us who are alive are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in a moment of time, the twinkling of an eye, he says here, our bodies will be transformed to their glorified state. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. I'll tell you what, the effects of gravity on this body are starting to show. Also, the Greek word, when we look at the term caught up, the Greek word in verse 17 is the word harpazo. Uh, and, and, you know, when I was, uh, before I came to the Lord, I studied I, with Jehovah's Witnesses, I had with a bunch of groups, and one of them was the Jehovah's Witnesses for a year, and they used to, the boy, they would just put the hammer down, eh, the rapture's not in the Bible, oh, those, you know, and, 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 and there are groups out there now that say, oh, the rapture's not in the Bible. Well, they're right, and they're wrong. <laughs> so, you gotta understand, the word harpazo here, if you translate that, the Latin word, which was popular in the day, is raptus, or raptus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And that's where we get the word rapture. So it is there. It is inexplicably there. You can't make it not be there. It's in the text. And it literally means to grab or to seize by force. And I think that's interesting because what he's essentially saying is that when it happens... If you belong to Christ, you're going. <laughs> you don't have a choice. You will be caught up together with him in the clouds, in the air, and, and you will go. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I love that. I love that it's like he's, he just uses very strong language here. He's saying, this is going to happen. You will go. And that's how, that's the end of it. It's sort of like that's the end of the discussion here. So think about this too. The entire church. And I don't mean, I've talked about last week, the church isn't the building, it's you and I. The entire church, for the first time, every believer in history will be there to meet the Lord in the air, in the atmosphere. And yeah, I checked the word, it's atmosphere. Interesting, Ephesians chapter 2 describes the realm of Satan as he is the prince of the power of the air. Same word, atmosphere. And I, you know, I, this just blows me away. And I just, I think, how cool is this? Because here we have the King of Heaven. <laughs> he's coming in the clouds, and, and it, he, he's got this. He's the conqueror. You know, he's he's the one that's coming for us. He's coming for his church. He's going to gather his church on the doorstep of the defeated. I mean, he reaches right into Satan's territory, and he goes right to the the middle of the enemy's realm. 2,000 years of believers from every country, every culture, every language are there. And we know that we're going to share that with him. Whether we have died and left this life feet first or whether we go head first, one or the other is going to happen. He says it will happen. Another thing I think about with this is what about children? Now, the text doesn't specifically tell us here 
but I believe understanding the character of God does. Um, Jesus said, Suffer not the little children to come unto me, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Think about it. In the Exodus, Israel rebels against God out there in the wilderness and God judges them. He says, you're gonna, you, your carcasses will fall in this wilderness. Except for who? Children. The innocents. They would be the ones that would go in and inherit the land. There are other examples in the scripture. Think about David with his child that died and and, and, and again, time doesn't permit. But if we look at the very character of God and the fact that he is merciful and compassionate and those innocents who have not yet had the opportunity to make a choice, think about what this looks like, folks. Globally, people, kids from every nation, every ethnicity, every religion suddenly vanishing. And, and you know, and, and there's a lot of talk, a lot of conjecture about how man will explain away the rapture. And I, I, I do not know what it will be. You know, there, there's a lot of talk these days about alien spacecraft, and that's why they're more popular in the news. That could be. I mean, it's one way to explain it. But this is what I do know, and this is what God's Word says. In Second Thessalonians, we're told that after these events that God will send a deluding influence on the people who are left, that they might believe what is false. So it, maybe it'll be as simple as, well, all these people are gone. So anyway, what's for lunch? You know, we don't know. But we do know that there will be some plausible way that they work around everybody being gone. Now, I put a, I'm going to put a chart up here. I'll leave it up for the rest of the, the our time because I want to talk about it at this point. And I'm condensing this so... Uh, understand that, that I might be skipping some points that, again, your favorites. <laughs> so, But at this point, with the church taken up, three things will take place sooner or later. And it, you know, we could have discussions about that. But first of all, the restrainer that we see in Second Thessalonians, we'll talk about that in a minute, the Holy Spirit, the one who restrains, is taken out of the way. Because... At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down. The representation of Christ on this earth has been the church in the rapture. When the church is taken out, guess who goes with them? The Holy Spirit is taken out of here. He is the one who restrains. So in the events we see here, the church is taken up. The Holy Spirit representation of Christ on this earth is gone. The second thing we see here is the, and again, we could get into talking about dates and timelines and all that, but the Antichrist will be revealed. There are different positions on that. Does the tribulation kick off? Or does the rapture kick off the tribulation? Or is that at some point later with the, and, and, you know, again, different people have different opinions. I've had a couple of different stances on that over the years, and, and I, I'm not exactly sure when it comes about. But we do know that after the church is taken out, the Antichrist will be revealed. And while we don't know when these things will come about, I believe, personally, this is an opinion, that he's alive today. Uh, we see things in such a state of decay. The birth pangs that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew are accelerating in frequency and intensity. And, and folks, it's an exciting time to be alive. Will he come in our lifetime? I will not even hazard a guess. And I think that's a dangerous thing to do. As a matter of fact, if you uh, are, are reading or, or hanging out with somebody that thinks that they know, <laughs> it's a good thing to avoid. The other thing that happens here is the tribulation period begins. Again, we don't know how long after the rapture of the church, but the last seven years, uh, when things get, uh, the Antichrist, as he shows up, uh, that seven years, it's called the tribulation period because halfway through, the Antichrist will commit what's called the abomination of desolation, where he, he horribly offends Israel, uh, sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple, uh, and at that point, when he, because he makes a covenant with them to begin with, after that, things get to roll in very quickly, and we see the wrath of God being poured out and the earth actually being purged from sin. That's the great tribulation. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, 
We read, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Uh, Again, is there time between those events? Perhaps, perhaps not. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Again, that's a reference to the second coming. Understand, folks, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are different, separate events. With the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. With the second coming, he comes with his church. And, and, and we'll talk about that more as we get further along in Thessalonians here. So understand, too, there are those who believe uh, that when we're told in verse 17 that we'll meet the Lord in the air. And I want to talk about a, another viewpoint here. That the word meet there is indicative of when people went out to, vit, to, to meet a visiting king. And what, where one of the, the main interpreters, this is a, more of a reformed view, is that the, they would go out and meet this visiting king, and rather than go away with him, as we believe happens in the rapture, they believe that they just go out to meet him and they come back with him. And that's where people come up with the view that you know, the church is going to go through the tribulation and uh, that all these things are happening. I have some real problems with that. And, and primarily where the problem comes in is what's going to happen with Israel during that time. As I mentioned, the spotlight swings from the church onto Israel. Now, if the spotlight doesn't swing back to Israel, what do you do with Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11? What do you do with the that time of Jacob's trouble? How do you parse through that? I, and I don't find a great weight of biblical evidence to that particular argument. One of the things that people have done to, to reconcile that, we say, well, what is Israel? What happens with Israel? Is the answer for some is that the church is now Israel. That's where we get what we call replacement theology. Um, the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they had positions on that. Uh, but you know, and I was thinking about this too, folks. As we look at this, if John Calvin and Martin Luther were alive today and they saw what happened in 1948, got to remember, these guys had been around. They were looking back at church history and it had been hundreds and hundreds of years and Israel had not yet been restored. And so they concluded, well, the church must be Israel. That fits. It fit then. And in my opinion, it does not fit now because Israel has been restored as a nation. If you look at prophecy, I've talked about it before. It's like shifting a car. You've got to push in the clutch, you shift gears, and then you let the clutch out. And the clutch has been in for a long time. And when these guys came up with their positions, that clutch was in. Well, in 1948, the clutch came out. And, and we have, we're seeing that around us in our day. What an exciting time to be alive. I believe truly that had they been around and seen the things that happened, that they likely would have modified their stances on things. Again, we don't want to become dogmatic about this stuff and think, well, you know, that's my way or the highway kind of a thing. Uh, Truly, you can have strong opinions, and I have strong opinions about it, but it's not worth breaking fellowship with other people that love Jesus. So finally, and this is interesting, in verse 18 we read, he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Uh, last verse in the chapter here. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios and you can pick which one you want to go with. Which one makes more sense to you? <clears throat> that Paul says, hey church, seven years will go by quickly. In the meantime, a third of the world's population is going to be wiped out by war. Oh yeah, uh, there's going to be famine, earthquakes, water will be poisonous, demonic creatures are going to be running loose and be tormenting people, chewing on people for five months. Oh yeah, also you're going to want to die and you won't be able to. The sun's going to be so hot that everybody's going to get scorched. There's going to be bodies everywhere and the water's going to turn to blood. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Or Paul, or not Paul, John, writing, uh, again, Jesus speaking through John, through this church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, 
Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of testing or trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I think it's pretty clear how, how I orient on that. But as we wrap up, how do we apply this? There are, and both these different views that are out there, they have a biblical basis for them. I mean, they, they have scriptures that they believe support uh, their positions, and that's fine. The first thing I want to look at, and these are, these are, <laughs> you know, in Matthew 5, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, all right? You may be, you know, blessed are the poor and yeah, all that. Well, these are, these are Beatitudes, but they're not Jesus's, they're John's Beatitudes, so understand the difference there. But I want about three ways that, three mindsets that we can have that will be a benefit to the king and the kingdom. The first is be gracious. We're on the same side. There's an old saying, <laughs> if you find two, two people that agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. So while a biblically centered understanding of these things is good, it's important. Truly, folks, it's okay to disagree on doctrines that are not essential to salvation. I believe it's a mark of maturity in a believer's life to hold strong positions without blowing other people people for whom Jesus died and people who love Jesus away. Be careful. Hold the position that you have. A walk in love. Now it was Augustine, he said this, he said, in in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, love. Good to keep in mind as we have talks with our friends or our family about end times, prophetic stuff, different positions. The second thing that I want to look at as we wrap up is be the faithful servant. He's the guy that's looking for the Lord's return, for his master's return. So are you putting into your mind and into your life things that are consistent with the fact that you believe that Jesus is coming back and that he could show up any time? Or are you flirting with the world? Speaking in such a way, living, using language, drugs, drinking, looking at stuff you oughtn't be looking at, whatever it is. Are you living your life like you say you believe he's coming, but in actuality you're living like you really don't? That's a convicting statement. It's something that all of us, uh, I pray that all of us wrestle with these things. Because we live in a world that calls our name. We live in a world that if we're not living, again, as I mentioned, and what Jesus talks about there in Matthew 24, if you're not living in, in light of the expectant, the imminent return of Christ, you're going to begin to drift. You're going to begin to drift into carnality. You begin to drift into you know, taking things outside of the realm of what God's word governs and into your own hands. Wrestle. I, and I believe he wants us to wrestle about things like this. It's a challenge for us. Live our lives in light of the fact that he's coming back for his church. Lastly, be sure you know. And in that, be sure they do too. If there's a message that comes out of this passage, this study today, it's that physical death is not the end of it. Everyone will be resurrected. I haven't talked about it. But the second resurrection, we're talking about the first resurrection when it's the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of those that belong to Christ. The second resurrection is something that no one wants to see. And that's a resurrection to judgment. Serious stuff. Heaven and hell hanging the balance in people's lives. If that's you, give your life to Jesus. You don't have to worry about it. And if you know Christ this morning, you don't have to worry about it. Judgment is done. He was judged at the cross for you. If you haven't, do so. Because that judgment rests on your life until you do. In that, with people in your sphere, people in your circle, in your family, your friends, co-workers, whatever that may be, understand there's a very, very strong possibility that time is very short. Be sure, as much as you're able, 
be sure that you have given the love of Christ to them, both in word and deed, as you live, as you're, you're a living witness. And sometimes you use words. That's God's will for us, specifically. It's his will for the church. As we live in these last days, as we live in light of his soon return, we don't know what it may be. Like I said, I, and I've told people, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm either, uh, I'm either leaving here feet first or head first, and that's up to the Lord. It's not for me to decide. But we are going to be there. We are going to be in his presence. We will meet him in the air, all of us. What a glorious, glorious day that is to anticipate and a reality that we need to take to heart because it'll happen. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful this morning as we race through this passage and, and, and look at these things that, as I mentioned, that volumes and volumes of books have been written about, endless talks and, and all. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would instill these truths deep in our hearts, that you would have your way with each one in this room, perhaps watching online, people within the sound of my voice, that you would find hearts that are yielded to you, that you would find servants who are waiting for your soon return, that you would find us about our Father's business. And Lord, with all the distractions that we endure and and the things going on in our lives, we pray that you would keep us close, that we would be mindful to put you first in our lives, and that our lives would reflect that as we deal with those around us, that they would see those things in our lives and glorify our Father who's in heaven. It's our heart's desire, Father. Let us live as though he's coming back today, plan like he's not coming back for a hundred years, but live our lives in the expectancy of the soon return of our King. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.